Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. Hey guys, I'm Ray Bella, and this is Words for Granted, a podcast that looks at how words change over time. If you love the show, you can become a contributor at patreon.com slash wordsforgranted. For just a buck a month, you'll gain access to bonus episodes, and for a bit more, I'll even send you your own Words for Granted mug. The latest patrons episode is on the etymology of Britain, from its origins as a Celtic root word to its unlikely borrowing into Greek to its modern usage as a geopolitical entity. Here's an excerpt of what the contributors are listening to. Now, if you're wondering why the Greeks had a word for Britain in the first place, that's a good question. Britain is on one side of Europe, Greece is on the complete other side of Europe, and in the ancient world, these two regions never had any significant linguistic or cultural contact. The average Greek citizen probably had no idea where Britain was, or that Britain even existed in the first place. And we can say the same thing about the average British citizen with regard to their knowledge of Greece. If anything, we would expect the Greek word for Britain to have been borrowed from Latin, not the other way around, since the Latin-speaking Romans were the ones who invaded and occupied the British Isle. Well, even though the average ancient Greek would have been clueless about Britain, there was one particular Greek who wasn't clueless about Britain. That Greek was named Pythias, and that's because Pythias actually went to Britain. If, instead of Patreon, you'd like to make a one-time donation, you can do that at www.paypal.me slash wordsforgranted. Every little bit adds up. Alright, let's get on to today's episode, part four in a series on proper place names. In the last two episodes, we looked at the etymologies of Wales and Germany, both of which are European countries with histories that span millennia. Even though modern Germany has only been a country since the late 19th century, Germanic peoples have inhabited that region since the dawn of the Common Era. Instead of exploring the name of another European country that dates back to ancient history, today we're going to explore the name of an American city that dates back to just the 18th century. However, as we're about to see, its name does indeed date back to ancient history. That city is Cincinnati, one of the largest cities in the state of Ohio. For my non-American listeners who might not know American geography very well, Ohio is a Midwestern state near the Great Lakes. If that doesn't help you, Ohio is directly west of Pennsylvania. If that doesn't help you, you might want to just pull up a map. Our story begins in the 1780s, the decade after America's victorious war for independence against Britain. In 1783, as part of the aftermath of this war for independence, America acquired the Northwest Territory from Britain. 
The Northwest Territory was a massive chunk of sparsely inhabited land that would eventually be divided into the modern states of Ohio, Indiana, Illinois, Michigan, Wisconsin, and Minnesota. With the acquisition of this new territory, many Americans began moving west, beginning an era of migrating pioneers. In 1788, three of these so-called pioneers, Matthias Damon, Robert Patterson, and Israel Ludlow, purchased 800 acres of Ohio land across from the mouth of a river called the Licking. Yes, the Licking River. This land would eventually become the city of Cincinnati, but it wasn't called Cincinnati at first. It was called Losantiville. This name, Losantiville, was chosen by the territory's original surveyor, John Filson, and it means the city across from the mouth of the Licking River. And in what language does it mean that, you ask? The answer is in no language at all. And that's because Losantiville is a totally made-up compound word comprising abbreviated words from four different languages. The L comes from the first letter in the name of the Licking River. The Os comes from the Latin word os, meaning mouth. The Ante comes from the Greek prefix anti, meaning opposite and ville comes from the French word ville meaning city. So what we get is the city across from the mouth of the Licking River. I'm sure Mr. Filson felt wonderfully clever when he came up with that one. But in spite of however clever Mr. Filson may have felt, his made-up compound name didn't last very long. Two years after the founding of Losantiville, its name was changed to Cincinnati by Arthur St. Clair, the governor of the entire Northwest Territory. At that time, St. Clair was a prominent member of a patriotic fraternal organization called the Society of Cincinnati, and he thought that Cincinnati, an homage to this organization, was a better name for an up-and-coming American city than a dumb acronym. Based on the etymology of Losantiville that I just explained, I probably would agree with him myself. Now, before we discuss what Cincinnati means or where the word comes from, I think it makes more sense to first discuss what the Society of Cincinnati actually was, and still is. This has nothing to do with language per se, but it is historically significant to our story. The Society of Cincinnati was founded by Henry Knox in 1783. Henry Knox was a military officer in the Continental Army, the army that fought for independence against Britain, and later became the first United States Secretary of War. So, a pretty impressive guy in his day. The Society of Cincinnati was formed as a fraternity for anyone who served at least three years in the Continental Army. Since the Continental Army comprised both American and French soldiers, the Society of Cincinnati was ordained in France as well. According to the Society's own manifesto, it was founded in order to 1. Preserve the rights so dearly won, 2. Promote the union of the states, and 3 assist members in need, their widows, and their orphans. Today, the Society exists as a nonprofit dedicated to the promotion of the ideals of its founders, and membership is passed down to the oldest son of descendants of those who fought in the Revolutionary War. So, now that we know what the Society of Cincinnati is all about, what does Cincinnati mean? Cincinnati is the plural form of the Latin name Cincinnatus. In other words, the Society of Cincinnati is literally the Society of Cincinnatuses. So, who was the original Cincinnatus? According to Roman sources, 
Lucius Quintus Cincinnatus was a Roman statesman, military leader, and temporarily elected dictator who lived from 519 to 430 BCE. In Latin, his name would have been pronounced Quincunatus with hard C's, but since the name is more familiar in the English language in its anglicized form with soft C's, I'm going to stick with that pronunciation over the course of this episode. Many scholars, and even some ancient Romans, such as Cicero, have speculated that the story of Cincinnatus is a legendary fabrication that never actually happened, or at least not in the version of the story that has come down to us, but as it pertains to our narrative today, the facticity of Cincinnatus' life doesn't really matter. Whether or not Cincinnatus was real, the story of his life has been an inspiration for various cultures in various historical time periods since it was first recorded by the Roman historian Livy in the 50s BCE. With that said, I'm going to tell the Cincinnatus story without bogging down every line by saying, according to legend, or allegedly this, and allegedly that. For our purposes in this podcast, Cincinnatus actually lived. During Cincinnatus's life, Rome was still a republic. It had yet to come under the dictatorship of Julius Caesar and transform into an empire. American revolutionary figures were obsessed with the Roman Republic as a model of political virtue, and among the most virtuous figures from this era was Cincinnatus. This makes the city of Cincinnati the first commemorative place name in this miniseries. If you listen to episode 59, which was the general overview of this miniseries, you may recall that the commemoration of important historical individuals and ideals is a common source of place names. Well, the name of Cincinnati commemorates both a historical individual and cultural idealism in one. If we consider the life and times of Cincinnatus through the lens of 18th century American idealism, I think it'll become clear why these revolutionary fighters found Cincinnatus, a Roman statesman who had been dead for millennia, such an inspiration. During the prime of his life, Cincinnatus served in both the Roman government as a consul and the Roman military as a distinguished general. After a domino effect of unfortunate events involving a violent son, he lost much of his wealth and was resigned to a life of plowing a small plot of land. In 458 BCE, Rome was under attack by a neighboring Italian tribe called the Aequi, and the Aequi were winning the fight. The Roman army was under the leadership of incapable consuls, so in an act of last resort desperation, the old Cincinnatus was approached and offered the position of Magister Populi, or military dictator. A Magister Populi was elected only during states of emergency, and although their rule only lasted for six months, during those six months, they had complete control of the state. Whereas a man of lesser virtue might have salivated over the opportunity to gain complete dictatorial control over his country, especially if that man's life were reduced to rural physical labor, Cincinnatus was reluctant to seize the reins of Rome, wary of the implications of absolute power. It took a lot of convincing to get Cincinnatus to leave his farm, and when he did, it was on behalf of the welfare of the Republic, not of his own reputation or personal gains. He asked for blessings from the gods, gathered up all the city's men of military age, set out to the battlefield, and led Rome to a quick victory over the Aequi. Within 15 days of his ascension to the most powerful position in Rome, literally its dictator, Cincinnatus gave up his power and returned to the rugged agrarian life of plowing his small plot of land. 
In doing so, he became an eternal symbol of Roman Republican virtues, agrarianism, patriotism, and selflessness. These virtues are encapsulated in the Society of Cincinnati's Latin motto, Omnia Reliquit Servare Rem Publican. Translated into English, it means, He gave up everything to serve the Republic. Whether or not the story of Cincinnatus's life is true, it couldn't be any more different from that of the later Roman, Julius Caesar, whose power-hungry ego led to his self-appointment of dictator of Rome. So, what does this ancient story, perhaps mythical in nature, have to do with the American Revolution? After the War for Independence was won, many Americans saw parallels between the lives of Cincinnatus and George Washington. In late 18th century literature and art, Washington is often called by epithets such as the American Cincinnatus, the New Cincinnatus, and the Cincinnatus of the West. Like I already said, the simplicity of an agricultural lifestyle was considered a Roman virtue during the Republican era. The generation of American revolutionaries also considered agriculture a virtue, especially in contrast to the decadence of the British Empire from whom they just won independence. Cincinnatus and George Washington both spent a good deal of their lives working on farms, embodying this agricultural simplicity and self-sufficiency. Yes, Washington had a great deal of help from slaves, but that's a whole separate discussion. Before becoming the first president of the United States, Washington was the commander-in-chief of the Continental Army. Like the army that Cincinnatus assembled against the Aquai, Washington's army against the British was a largely makeshift affair made up of ordinary people, not well-trained soldiers. When the Revolutionary War had ended and America won independence, Washington became the most famous and most powerful man in the country. He easily could have established himself as a monarch or dictator, but again, like Cincinnatus, Washington put the best interest of his country over his own personal gain. America had just rebelled against a monarchical power, and the last thing Washington wanted to do was to re-establish one in America. After the Revolutionary War, Washington simply returned to his farm on Mount Vernon, hoping to retire from political and military life for good. But as we all know, that's not how the rest of his life played out. Post-Revolutionary America soon realized, hey, we actually do need a ruler of some kind, and to fill that role, everyone naturally turned to Washington. Leery of this ascension to power, yet again like Cincinnatus, Washington reluctantly agreed, and of course the rest is history. So, now we know the historical and cultural basis upon which the name Cincinnati was chosen for this Ohio city across the mouth of the Licking River. But what about the etymology of the word Cincinnatus itself? Sure, it's the name of a historical figure, but what did that name mean? In Latin, Cincinnatus literally meant curly-haired. Recall that Cincinnatus' full name was Lucius Quintus Cincinnatus, where Cincinnatus is the last of these three names. In the Roman system of personal names, this third name was called a cognomen, and it usually reflected a person's attributes such as their appearance, habits, or occupation. You can think of the cognomen as an ancient nickname that was officially incorporated into a person's name. Today, we actually refer to many famous ancient Romans by their cognomen, not their first names or what we would consider to be their first names. Caesar, 
Cicero, Catullus, Agricola, and of course Cincinnatus are just a few examples of Romans who have been remembered by history by their cognomens. Alright, that's it for this one. I hope you loved it. Again, if you want to support the show, head over to patreon.com slash wordsforgranted. You can find me on Facebook and Twitter as Words for Granted, and if you want to contact me directly, the email for the show is wordsforgranted at gmail.com. All right, have a great day. I'll talk to you next time here at Words for Granted. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill.